You're listening to a Dulahan Productions podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Born on May 21st, 1960, was a man many came to fear not only for his killings, but for what came after. His sick and demented mind indulged him to dive into the unspeakable acts of necrophilia and cannibalism. He was once called the Milwaukee Cannibal or the Milwaukee Monster, but we know him simply by his government name, Jeffrey Dahmer. Today we will look into his life and the murders that made him infamous. This is Serial Time, a serial killer podcast. I'm your host, Jason Sparks, and joining me for part two of our in-between season special is my dear friend and new co-host for the show, Connor Broadfoot. How's it going, Connor? Man, it's going good. I'm excited to be here. Good. I'm, I'm glad, you know, like, like I was saying, this is a uh, first, first time uh, having you in for, uh, for Dual Han Productions, but going forward, you're, you'll be the, the guy in the, the, the chair with me as we go through this adventure together. That's right. That's right. Me and you, buddy. All day, every day. That's right. And so with that being said, you know, we do have season two up and coming. We don't have a, a release date for that yet, but be on the lookout for season two of Serial Time. All right, so to jump into Jeffrey Dahmer, we'll start off, of course, at his early life. So Jeffrey Leonel Dahmer was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and was the first of two sons to Leonel Herbert Dahmer and Joyce Annette Dahmer. There's conflicting evidence on the attention Jeffrey was given at a young age. Some say that he was often neglected as a young infant, and others say that his parents were rather doting on young Jeffrey. As Jeffrey entered grade school, trouble started to arise in his home life. His father was frequently away from home, and when he was home, he was enveloped in his studies as he was studying chemistry at Marquette University. His mother was described as a depressed hypochondriac and was in constant need of time and attention from those around her. His mother is even recounted as attempting to take her own life via overdose from her anxiety medication. When recalling his youth, Jeffrey recounted that he was, quote, unsure of the solidity of his family, end quote. Jeffrey goes on to discuss the conflict that that existed within the house, and that even at a young age into adolescence, he would get into constant arguments with his parents. And so kind of right here, you know, Jeffrey's admitting that at a young age, you know, that his childhood was not the best that he did have that, that troubled childhood. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting, you know, reading about these people, you know, watching interviews, you know, you are a product of your environment and uh, growing up in, you know, a very messed up situation, not knowing who he was, you know, not having, you know, feeling like uh, I've read places where, you know, he felt he wasn't really accepted by his family, you know, going through that growing up, you know, it's gotta be hard on anybody. You know, everybody just wants to be wanted. So not feeling that from an early age through his whole, you know, young adult life. You know, it's what it's what is the start of leading to what he becomes. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. And and the thing that is so difficult when talking about serial killers is typically the serial killer, not always, but typically they like to talk or... Mm-hmm the investigators are able to pull information out of them and rarely do the victims or, or even the family members really want to discuss 
this individual because it's it's such a tragedy, such a terrible thing that they ended being they ended up being a product, like you said, of their environment, and they know that they were part of what made him that product. Yeah, it's it's hard to sit back, you know, as a parent, you know, you know, your your child ultimately makes every decision, but to feel like you were uh, potentially a catalyst for what, why, you know, Jeffrey did the things he did, you know, you can't be a good feeling as a parent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that posing question of what could I have done differently? Even mm-hmm. though, yeah. Well, never, you know, it. Know. exactly. You know, that haunted them till they took their last breath. Yep. Absolutely. So in continuing on, Jeffrey was described as an energetic and happy child, but his behavior was said to have changed after undergoing double hernia surgery at the young age of four years old. I, I feel like that is also kind of an interesting demographic that, you know, double hernia, terrible surgery to go through and having to go through it at four years old, it really makes you question, you know, what happened to that surgery was, was anything, you know, unorthodox during that surgery that went wrong. That's some of the things that, you know, we'll sadly never know, but yeah, I didn't even know you could have a double hernia surgery, especially at four years old. I will be honest, I didn't either. And even doing further research into double hernia surgery, it's typically for people much, much older than four years old. Yeah, I mean, I know my dad had a hernia and he was, you know, well, in his 40s when he had something like that. I've never heard of a, you know, a young toddler having any issues like that, especially double. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so so strange and raises questions what brought that about. But mm-hmm. So while in elementary school, Jeffrey was known to be quiet and timid with very few friends. One of his teachers even recounted that he had telltale signs of abandonment. During this time frame, his mother had her second son, which could further explain the abandonment Jeffrey felt since his father was rarely there. His mother was constantly bedridden and desiring attention herself. And now he is probably thinking that there is a younger brother who is taking his parents' attention away from him. It is also around this time that Jeffrey became obsessed with dead animals, but most notably their bones. His father, Lionel, stated that he would that he was oddly thrilled with these animal bones that Jeffrey called his fiddlesticks. Jeffrey would even search outside the house for more bones, and when he came across dead animals, he was fascinated with discovering the locations of bones within the animal. In May 1968, the family moved to Bath Township, Ohio, to a house with a little bit of land and a shack not far from the house in the woods. This shack became Jeffrey's childhood getaway as he would collect insects and the carcasses of small animals. Some of these carcasses were even placed in jars of formaldehyde to preserve their conditions. His father, who is now a research chemist, more than likely provided his son with the formaldehyde and even taught his son how to correctly bleach bones, believing that it was his son's interest in chemistry rather than his son's fascination in death. And what age was he again at this? He is still a young child. Good. Yeah, like goodness, that that doesn't throw red flags. I don't know what we are. Exactly, we got a lot of problems already. <laughs> I mean, calling them his fiddlesticks. Yeah, yeah. Jeffrey at this point times eight, maybe nine. Yeah, I know that if I went to my parents at nine years old and was asking them how I could, uh, you know, preserve bones and carcasses, you know, I'm I'm not sure they would be like, well, here, son, here's your whole entire kit where you can do this in the garage. Go have fun. 
Yeah, and even the the start, you know, say say you find a dead squirrel or a dead rabbit, and you run into the house, and you're like, "Mom, Dad, look what I found!" They're gonna freak out. They're gonna oh, tell absolutely. you to throw that away right then and there, you know. Oh goodness! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> already should be posing some questions into the the psyche of your child, but you know. Yeah, that's not a that's not a scientific curiosity that that someone has at that age. No, no, not at all. So with this knowledge in hand, Jeffrey became more infatuated with dead animals. And a childhood friend was quoted with stating that Jeffrey was interested in how animals, quote, fit together, end quote. At a, at a young age, at eight or nine, I don't even think I really understood anything about anatomy. Oh, not at all. <laughs> not at all. And I'm definitely not going to, um, you know, take take a... Um different animals anatomy apart put them back together like it's a, a jigsaw puzzle no no that was not not exciting to me luckily at that age no i was more concerned on uh playing playstation i was probably trying to play kingdom hearts or something <laughs> right exactly <laughs> <laughs> learning how to skateboard all that that's what i'm saying so what might have been harmless but still creepy and unusual behavior for a child took a turn when he decapitated the corpse of a dog and crucified it to a tree behind his house and furthermore took a childhood friend to go see what he claimed he simply stumbled across. All I'm saying, I think if I'm this kid, say eight, nine, ten years old, and, and I see this, and like my, my buddy's like, oh, like you got to come check this out, you know. I go with him. I don't think, you know, I'm keeping quiet about that. I, oh, I absolutely think, not. I'm squawking. My mom and dad are going to know what I saw. Oh, 100%. 100%. Like someone, the, the cops need to be showing up at that this the Dahmer house because something weird's going on. Yeah, that's not just something you happen to stumble upon. And if you do, you need to tell somebody because something weird's going on behind your house. Something weird's going on. So at age 14, Jeffrey started high school at Revere High School. His freshman year, he started drinking alcohol and even brought liquor to school with him. When asked by a classmate why he was drinking in the morning in class, he simply responded with, quote, it's my medicine, end quote. Hmm. At 14. At 14. And, you know, I've, I've known guys that started drinking at 14, whatever. That's not too terribly anomalous. It's still very young. Mm -hmm. But to bring it to school, like... Well, just, yeah, bring it to school. Just tell everyone, hey, this is my this is my morning remedy. You know, that that that's a red flag central. Yeah, it's like you guys got your coffee. I got my scotch, you know, yeah. we're, not, we're not the same. <laughs> Put some hair on your chest. Exactly, you know. <laughs> Although he only received average grades and would be partially or fully intoxicated during school, his teachers described him as polite and intelligent. I don't see how that happens. No. He even played tennis and was in the band for a period of time, which I find interesting as I was going through this research that these individuals and in, in Dahmer already showed this at a young age that he's kind of the outcast. Mm -hmm. But typically these individuals don't try and find a sense of community like he did by playing tennis, by being in the band that that's anomalous typically. Yeah, you don't see you don't see most outcasts going into extracurriculars, you know, looking for for team right teamwork and all that, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Don't don't want the teamwork, the camaraderie, you know, they'd rather go home and, and, and be to their own devices. And, yeah, play with their fiddlesticks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So Jeffrey described that while in high school, he realized he was homosexual and had a brief relationship with another boy about his age. While he stated that he never had intercourse with the boy, that he started to have sexual desires for dominating and controlling a submissive partner. He became aware that he was namely aroused by the chest of men and that this arousal came from his desire to dissect a human body. So already some pretty messed up thoughts from a 14-year-old boy. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about that at 14. No, not at all. <laughs> I was thinking about the acne on my face and, yes. and, and how, to, how to get like my first girlfriend or whatever, you know. I was like, oh, a hair on my face. I'm going to see if I can grow a beard, you know. Exactly. All types of little things, but definitely not, uh, not mutilation and domination. No, no, it was not my, my cup of tea. So two years later, at age 16, Jeffrey had planned to incapacitate a jogger he had seen time and time again and take advantage of the man while he lay unconscious. However, the day he planned this attempted rape, he did not see that man out jogging. Whoever that man was, that oh, was a lucky day. Decided oh, he is I'm so glad he overslept. Oh, yeah. He's like, oh, man, I just... Feeling kind of lazy today. I'm just going to sit home, watch TV or something instead of going yeah. on this jog. But yeah, the, and, and again, age 16, already having premeditated desires to to rape and sexually assault a man. Like he, Jeffrey, hid in a bush with a baseball bat, ready to, you know, knock this guy out, potentially kill mm. this guy. Yeah. Not, not things that were on my mind at age 16. No, I was thinking about... How could I get my dad to give me some gas money so I could go to Pizza Hut or something, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Go hang out with everybody on Friday night after the football game. Right. So during Jeffrey's junior year of high school, he was noted as acting out and becoming the class clown and would pull pranks such as acting as if he was having a seizure or that he had cerebral palsy. During this time frame, Jeffrey's parents decided to get a divorce, most noted as a result from an affair that his mother was having but it is also believed that Jeffrey's antics and failing grades at the time was a result and led to the strain on their, uh, on their marriage leading to their divorce. So his father, Lionel, left the family home to his now ex-wife and two sons. After graduating high school, a teacher from the school recognized Jeffrey in a local park and that he had already drank several beers. And when confronted on the matter, Jeffrey simply responded, it was a result of troubles at home. I, I, I'm thinking if I'm a, a, an educator and I see, you know, one of the young men who just went through my establishment drinking heavily at, at a local park and, and it's, it's like, yeah, I'm just having problems at home. I don't think I'm leaving it at that. Oh, no, no. I mean, no, not even just an educator, but just a person, you know, somebody, you know, you see somebody claim that, you know, I'm popping a squat and being like, all right, well, let's, what can I do to help? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's, what's the situation? And, you know, you find out that this individual is still basically a, a kid, you know, it's like, all right, cool. Like what, what legal uh, actions need to be taken here? Cause this kid may be too scared to ask for, for, you know, that type of authority to come in. Mm -hmm. So that same year, actually, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks after Jeffrey graduated high school, his mother and younger brother moved out of the family home to go live with relatives back in Wisconsin and left Jeffrey alone in the house. Mm. 
So don't know too terribly much about his mother and father, except for what I was able to research. But from this and, and this alone, not not mom of the year. No, not uh, not not getting that card. Sad to say. Yeah, with uh, yeah, yeah, not at all. Because just I, I can't even imagine me just graduating high school, being eighteen, and and my parents are like, "See ya, out." Like, I don't know what I would do. Yeah, don't you know, know how seen, it would be. Well, you know, you see parents like, "Hey, you're eighteen, get on on your own." But mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, they're they're still always at home. Uh, no, they just up and left home. Up and left. And it's yeah, not I don't like know if, right down the road. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know if you know later on if you'll get to what truly triggered it. But I'm just curious as to listening to this is was this the ultimate trigger for the antics that were to become of Dahmer? So, so very good question. So on June eighteenth. 1978, just a short while after his graduation, Jeffrey would commit his first of many murders. While driving, Jeffrey picked up a man named Stephen Hicks, who was around Jeffrey's age. Stephen was hitchhiking, trying to get to a rock concert. Jeffrey enticed Hicks to uh, to come back to his house for a few beers, and that he didn't have to worry because no one was home. When recounting this event, Jeffrey said that he was sexually aroused by the sight of Steve of Stephen's bare chest while seeing him on the side of the road. At Jeffrey's house, Steve, Stephen and Jeffrey hung out and drank beer until Stephen said that he was ready to leave so that he could get to the concert. Jeffrey stated, quote, he wanted to leave and I did not want him to leave, end hmm. quote. So what does Jeffrey do? Any guesses? Oh, I'm going to say... Uh... Well, you already said that was his first murder. I was going to say, I'm going to guess he kills him, but mm-hmm. um, I'm not for sure on how he did it. Well, it's um, a murder weapon that's not too terribly typical. He bludgeoned Stephen in the back of the head twice with a 10-pound dumbbell and then oh. proceeded to strangle Stephen to death with good. the handle of the dumbbell. Oh, good God. Yeah. Yeah. So already pretty gruesome, showing a, a, a lack of empathy but something that you'll you'll note as we move forward that strangulation does become jeffrey's mo yeah jeffrey was going for the wrong gains right there yeah exactly (laughs) i mean he's only got a 10 pound dumbbell he needs to get his weight up no i'm kidding uh no 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 low weight high reps come on now (laughs) (laughs) jeffrey was getting cut (laughs) getting cut exactly so after Stephen was dead, Jeffrey stripped him of his clothes and proceeded to masturbate over this corpse. Mm. Jeffrey later dissected Stephen's corpse and buried him in a shallow grave behind the house. Apparently, Jeffrey was not done with Stephen after he buried him. Or maybe he just had fear that since it was in a, a shallow grave that he might get caught. So, Jeffrey brought the body back inside peeled the flesh off Stephen's bone and dissolved them in acid that he later flushed down the toilet. Oh, gosh. After this, he took a sledgehammer to the bones and scattered the remains throughout the woods. Only six weeks after the murder of Stephen Hicks, Jeffrey's father returned to the family home with his new fiance and were shocked to find Jeffrey was living in the house alone. Yeah. For for me, it really raises the question, you know, if if he wasn't alone, would we have ever got to the point, or would have we have ever got to the conclusion of this story? Yeah, I mean, it does raise that question. Mm-hmm. So, following these events, Jeffrey enrolled in the Ohio State University, 
However, due to his constant drinking, Jeffrey was largely failing within his first semester of college. I want to say his GPA in his first semester was a 0.4 on a 4.0 scale. Yeah, it was real bad. And don't get me wrong, college isn't for everybody. No, it's not. But that's bad. I mean, goodness gracious. You yeah. feel like you got to show up and can at least get like a one point something. I, I'd like to think, but yeah. So on a surprise visit, his father discovered that in his son's room that it was littered with liquor bottles. Hoping to turn his son's time in college around, his father went ahead and paid in full for his son's second term. But much to his chagrin, Jeffrey dropped out before even starting his second term. Hmm. I don't think that uh, if I come home and were to find my son's room full of liquor bottles that I'd just be like, hey, son, here's a here's a check to pay for your second semester of school that you're already failing. I think we're going to go try to get some help. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we're going to say, hey, we'll, we'll take a break. We might come back to this later, but let's let's go figure some things out. Yeah, uh, let's, let's, let me help you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So since college was not for Jeffrey, his father insisted that Jeffrey join the military. And in January 1979, Jeffrey enlisted in the United States Army as a medic. And so I, I have to imagine probably why, if, if Jeffrey had the option, why he decided to be a medic was due to his fascination in anatomy. Oh, absolutely. So while training to be a medic at Fort Sam Houston, he was repeatedly reprimanded for his intoxication and was even severely beaten by his fellow recruits due to his actions causing them to be reprimanded as well. Kind of thinking of um, uh, Full Metal Jacket, Private oh, Pile. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, code red, little uh, pillowcase bars of soap. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Not, not a great time. No, no, not at all. So in July 1979, Jeffrey was stationed in Baumholder, West Germany, as a combat medic. But not even two full years later, in 1981, Jeffrey was honorably discharged from the army being deemed unfit to continue serving due to his alcoholism. And so it's interesting here that he didn't serve out his full four-year contract, but they still gave him an honorable discharge, believing that he would be able to fit back into society and would not be a hazard to society. And that's why he got the honorable discharge instead of the dishonorable discharge. And Jesus H. Christ, if they weren't terribly wrong. Yeah, um... I just don't think, you know, kicking someone out of something for being a raging alcoholic is, um, you know, on the honorable scale. No, I, I'd, I'd have to agree with you. You know, you think you, you think that might be not the best person that you're you're releasing and sending back into society after you uh, serving as an enlisted soldier. That Yeah, uh, I mean, if he saw, you know, active combat, saw combat. If he's drinking his pain away and you just ship him back out into society, just, you know, one day he's in Germany, next day he's back stateside, you know, I, I just feel like that's a recipe for a disaster. Yeah, luckily for, for Jeffrey, he didn't see active combat, but at the same time, you know, I'm the military, I'm big part of the government, I have the resources to help this individual clean up his act, and mm -hmm. nope, I'm just going to release him back to society to where he will not have the money to pay for these yeah they turned him into someone else's problem exactly exactly so when jeffrey returned back stateside he was afraid to face his father and also said quote 
he was tired of the cold. And so what does he do? He decides to move to Miami Beach, Florida. For a short stint, he worked at a sandwich shop and spent most of his earnings on booze until he was eventually evicted from his motel for missing payments. Obviously, Jeffrey's not got his priorities in the right spot. Oh, no, it's beer before anything. Yeah. So Jeffrey, much to his embarrassment, called his father asking if he could return home to Ohio. Upon returning home, he is noted for asking his father and now mother-in-law to give him all the chores of the house to bide his time while he's looking for work. However, two weeks into his return home, he was arrested for drunk and disorderly conduct. And so it's like at the beginning of that sentence, you know, you think, oh, maybe Jeffrey's going to kind of turn it around and nope, can't even make it two weeks. And the thing is, too, it all goes back to uh, to the neglect and acceptance, you know, uh, seems, you know, his father took him back. Uh, but what did he do to help? It just doesn't seem like, you know, any any help was given, any care or concern. Yeah, no, I, I have to agree that. Yes, he's back and that may maybe Jeffrey, you know, volunteering to take on all the chores of the house isn't just for the thought of I'm going to be a good son. I don't have a job. You know, I'll, I'll do this for my father and my, my mother-in-law. I think it's really just a cry for attention, you know, mm-hmm. to say, hey, look at what all I've done. You know, even though I'm not working, I did all these things for you, you know, appreciate me. Mm-hmm. By the end of 1981, it seemed his father and mother-in-law were fed up with his constant drunkenness and inability to minimize his alcoholism, so they sent him to live with his grandmother in West Allis, Wisconsin. His father hoped that since his grandmother was the only person he seemed to have respect and affection for, that she would be a good role model to him. Jeffrey is again noted as being respectful and taking up chores around the house and even started attending church with his grandmother but his alcoholism did not seem to change. And so again, taking up chores for his grandmother, potentially a cry for attention, potentially good grandson, but I feel like attending church is is again going back to that social outcast aspect that Mm. you don't really see that a lot. Yeah, you don't see many people like that attending social gatherings in the slightest. And once again, going back to what seems like a, a trend so far is just uh, somebody takes him, does what they feel like they can do, and uh, then they just pass him on to the next person. They know no real, there are no real plans put in place to fix any of these issues. They just tolerate it for the time being, expect it to fix itself, and then pass it on to someone else to try to fix. There's no one that really took authority in, in getting him true help. Exactly, and and I have to f- imagine that this is just making his abandonment feel worse that, mm-hmm. you know, his, his mother didn't even want to be around him, took, took his brother and left. And then dad comes back. I go after serving in the military to live with dad and dad can't deal with me. So dad sends me to go with grandma in early 1982. Jeffrey got a job as a phlebotomist, but was only able to hold this job for about 10 months. And shortly after he was laid off he was arrested again for indecent exposure at a wisconsin state fair this guy just can't keep himself straight and narrow (laughs) no not at all he's just kind of doing whatever he wants and and seems to have you know no remorse or regret if he gets caught doing whatever he wants that it's just whatever to him 
1985, Jeffrey seemed to land a steady job with the Milwaukee Ambrosia Chocolate Factory. Shortly after, he was given a note while reading at a local library from a man that said that he would perform oral on him in the bathroom. While Jeffrey did not accept this offer, it did seem to stir his sexual fantasies once again. Jeffrey even stole a male mannequin to satisfy his sexual desires until his grandmother discovered the mannequin and forced him to get rid of it. So to me, I think potentially that this was the wrong call. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's it's unsettling to to most that he's, you know, using this mannequin as as essentially a sex toy. Mm-hmm. But his grandmother, it appeared that was just, nope, not not dealing with this. You get rid of this thing and we'll never talk about it again. Yeah. Instead of let's let's address the issue, let's let's talk about this. And also potentially for Jeffrey, this mannequin might have keep him satiated that yeah. he didn't have to go on back to the, the physicality of what he's going to do. So after this, in late 1985, Jeffrey started frequently frequently going to gay bathhouses as he believed these places to be his relaxing place. But he found himself becoming frustrated with his sexual partners because in his mind, they moved too much. Jeffrey said at this point in time that, quote, I trained myself to view people as objects of pleasure instead mm. of people, end quote. Yeah, that's dark. That's dark. That's really dark. And especially not only people as a whole, but sex partners, you know, that these aren't people. These are tools for my enjoyment. Yeah, and my pleasure. Exactly. And it's... A sick mentality to have. So starting in June 1986, Jeffrey found a way to fix what he believed was the problem in his sexual fantasies. So he starts using sedatives to drug his victims and then proceed to perform sexual acts with their unconscious bodies. Mm. And so, again, people not doing the the right checks and balances and, and checking into Jeffrey's life... Because Jeffrey was able to easily get these drugs by convincing his doctor that he needed them since he worked the night shift. Oh, good gosh. Sling them opioids. Let's go. In and out. You need drugs. We got them. Gosh, so much enabling. So much enabling. And I mean, has already been arrested twice, discharged, dis- or honorably discharged from the military, and it's just no signs that he can't keep getting away with it. So following several of these rapes, he was barred from the from entering the local bathhouses and started using local hotel rooms in its place. Following these events, Dahmer had planned to dig up the body of an 18-year-old boy who had recently been buried. But he discovered that the ground was too hard and gave up on this idea. Goodness Again. Gracious. Yeah. Yeah. To go and disturb someone's resting place to do God does not want to know what yeah. with its body. In 1986, he was arrested for lewd and lascivious behavior for masturbating in the presence of two 12-year-old boys. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So uh, what arrest is this now? This is number three. Number three, the honorable mm-hmm. discharge and gosh knows however other, you know, incidents that we've gone over of people running into him and, mm-hmm. you know, drinking in the park. Mm-hmm. To parents finding or dad finding the liquor bottles, and no one just thought, "Hey, 
this guy, this guy needs some help. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. Arrest them, put them on probation or something like that and, and make them someone else's problem. As you said, Yeah, just send them back out into society. And, and I'm a, I'm a, do you one better Connor? So, you know, you'd think for, for masturbating in front of, you know, two 12 year old boys, you, you, you might have the book thrown at you, right? Yeah. You'd think you'd hope. So the charge was eventually dropped to disorderly conduct, and he only had to serve one year of probation. Only a year? Only one year of probation. Does it, does it go into details as to why it was dropped and lessened? Uh, I didn't find anything really outstanding as to mm -hmm. why it was lessened. Um, I don't know if it was that the court just didn't want to deal with it or if just the evidence wasn't good enough if the kids potentially didn't testify because that is a, a constant as mm -hmm. well. But yeah. Good gosh. Moving forward into November, 1987, Jeffrey would begin to murder, murder once again. Jeffrey came across a, a man named Stephen Toomey and did his typical routine of drugging his victim. But what came next, according to Jeffrey, was total shock. When Jeffrey woke up the next day, he was on top of Stephen's corpse. Stephen's chest was crushed inward, and Jeffrey was bruised along his fists and elbows. Jeffrey bought a large suitcase and transported Stephen's body to his grandmother's house, where he dismembered the body and again severed the flesh from the bone, shattered the bone to pieces, and discarded of the body in into the trash, except for... Stephen's head. Jeffrey kept the head for a short while and eventually boiled the head in chemicals to preserve the skull, which he kept for his sexual for his sexual fantasies before eventually destroying it and discarding the pieces. Good so, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to me, I don't think I buy that this was a shock to Jeffrey due to what came next. Okay. But I, I say that to also say maybe it was. Maybe it was that, that blackout rage, mm -hmm. blackout of desire, whatever, that drove him to this point because he does seem to take accountability for a majority of his other crimes later on. So Jeffrey recounts that this was a pivotal moment in his life that showed that he could no longer control his impulses in 1988, only two months after he killed Stephen, he brought a 14-year-old boy by the name of James Doxtater back to his grandmother's house after promising money for nude photos. James was accounted as being a sex worker. Jeffrey, of course, did unspeakable acts with the child before strangling him to death and did the same process of discarding the body as he did with Stephen. A 14-year-old boy. 14 years old and yeah. the, the the fact that this point in in, in time and and more than likely still today that a 14 year old has finds themselves having to be a sex worker yeah that's what i was about to say the fact you know i mean obviously all that but just going off what you said you know you said 14 year old sex worker i mean that just raised my eyebrows like goodness gracious what has to be going on in that child's life to to go down that road yeah it's it's atrocious to think about and, and one of those things, sadly, we'll, we'll never know due mm -hmm. to Jeffrey's actions. In March of 1988, Jeffrey brought home 22-year-old Richard Guerrera. 
after offering him money for sex. And again, Jeffrey raped, murdered, and dismembered the man. He kept Richard's skull longer than the other two before also discarding it. In April 1988, Jeffrey brought home Ronald Flowers Jr. and would have been successful in murdering him if it was not for Jeffrey's grandmother, who called for her grandson and interrupted him before he was able to do his terrible acts. Jeffrey instead brought and left Ronald at a local hospital. Again, another individual getting insanely lucky in the mm. presence of a monster. It's about, I think that's the first time anyone's ever done something for him that actually turned out good. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Shout, out, shout out to Grandma for needing help. Yeah, shout out to Grandma for just calling up the, the staircase or down the hallway, you know. But speaking of that, in September of 1988, Jeffrey was asked to move out by his grandmother, by in part to his heavy drinking, the men that he would bring home late at night, and the strange smells that were starting to come up from the basement. Mm. So yet again, another family member saying, I don't want to deal with you. Yeah. Jeffrey found an apartment, and only two days after he moved in, he was arrested for sexually assaulting a 13-year-old boy in his apartment. This boy was also lured in with the hopes of money for nude photos. His father, or Jeffrey's father, hired a lawyer to defend his son, and Jeffrey underwent psychological evaluation. Through these evaluations, it appeared that Jeffrey suffered from alienation, an impulsive personality, and depression from a lack of accomplishment. It was also revealed that Jeffrey was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder. In late January 1989, Jeffrey pled guilty to second-degree sexual assault and enticing a child for immoral purposes. However, yet again, his sentence was suspended till May of the same year. So raise this question, you know, what's what's going on in the judicial system here at this point? You know, why are we not taking action to to lock up this this monster? But justice is slow as we've came to discover on this podcast. So during this period, Jeffrey moved back in with his grandmother. And in March, two months before his sentencing, he was said to have been approached by Anthony Sears. Jeffrey invited Anthony back to his grandmother's house and, according to Jeffrey, had consensual sexual activity before Jeffrey drugged and strangled him. Gosh. Yeah, seeing, seeing a pattern here, aren't we? No, most definitely. <laughs> so Jeffrey dismembered Anthony in his grandmother's bathtub this time and appeared to be fond of Anthony as he would continue to possess his head and gen genitalia that at one point he kept in his work locker. Hmm. So yeah, not only is he so sick and twisted in the mind to go through with these rapes and murders, but to keep this man's head and genitalia as trophies and to want to keep them so close to him that he kept them in his work locker. Yeah, he clocked in with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Checks on him on his break. Mm -hmm. Yeah, make sure, with them. make sure he didn't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I don't think he's going anywhere. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I have to agree. So in May 1989, Jeffrey's sentencing finally approached, and he was only sentenced to five years probation, one year in House of Corrections with work release, and was required to register as a sex offender. And he received parole two months before his release. Golly. Yeah. I have yeah. so many questions about the justice system, but we'll save that for another day. 
Oh, I, I 100% on board with you because <laughs> we, we've covered other individuals as well that it's it's mind-numbing. It's like, how how did we not prevent yeah, everything else from happening? Yeah, how does this through the cracks? Yep. How does with the, the history that this individual has already shown, mm-hmm. plus the acts that you are booking him for, mm-hmm. and that's what you come up with? Mm-hmm. Yep. You've already arrested this guy twice for doing illicit things either around or with minors. And you're just like, eh, you know, whatever. It's fine. Plus all this drinking stuff. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that, and it's just, all right, man, you're good to go. Let's, you're good. You're fine. Stamped, accepted. Okay. And, and back into society. Mm-hmm. And, and I hate to tell you, Connor, it's only going to get worse. Oh, let me buckle up, buddy. <laughs> So in May 1990, Jeffrey once again moved out of his grandmother's house and into an apartment in a high crime area. Just one week later, Jeffrey invited 32-year-old sex worker Raymond Smith over to his apartment after the promise of cash for sex. Jeffrey drugged and strangled the man to death. What made Raymond different is that Jeffrey bought a Polaroid and started taking pictures of Raymond's deceased body in different sexual positions. Hmm. Jeffrey then dismembered Raymond's body in his bathtub and discarded the remains except for except for Raymond's skull, which he spray-painted and placed next to Anthony's, Anthony Sears' skull. The same month, Jeffrey invited another man over to his apartment and mistakenly drank the drink that he had put the sedatives in. Jeffrey accounted that this individual robbed him after he passed out from his own date rape drugs, but he only told that to his parole officer and did not bring it up to uh, law enforcement. In 1990, Jeffrey invited over 27-year-old Edward Smith and yet again drugged and strangled him to death. However, Jeffrey tried something new with Edward. Jeffrey put Edward's corpse in the freezer for several months in hopes that the bones would not be able to retain moisture. This is, of course, not how that works. No. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Daddy didn't teach him too terribly much about chemistry, just just high-level stuff. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So in trying to dry Edward's skull to have another trophy for his collection, Jeffrey put his skull in the oven. And Connor, yet again, can you guess what happens? Mm, I'm going to guess. Not good, and I'm going to guess he keeps it. Maybe he spray paints it a little bit different and, and keeps it with the others he's already collected. Well, I guess you can say fortunately in this aspect, since the body was you know put in a freezer and then put in a oven to dry for god knows how long at what temperatures the school violently shattered in the oven Mm. yeah yeah Mm. so jeffrey was not able to keep edward's head as a trophy that's unfortunate (laughs) (laughs) poor jeffrey did yeah can keep that skull no oh man so in september 1990 Jeffrey invited over 22-year-old Ernest Miller with the promise of cash for photos, potentially sex. When Jeffrey attempted to drug Ernest, it appeared he was running low on sedatives, and as a result, he used the knife he often used to dissect his victims to slit Ernst's jugular, causing him to bleed out very quickly. So here... Here's a change. A little bit of a change from his his established M.O. of strangulation. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. He's recognizing that 
since he didn't have enough drugs to give him and that they were not working effectively since they were in low quantities, that he had to go to extreme measures to do the job. So Jeffrey took Ernst's body and took pictures of him in several different sexual positions. Later, while dismembering Ernst, it was rumored that Jeffrey would talk to his decapitated head during the process. It is speculated that Ernst was the first victim that Jeffrey actually consumed parts of his body, but he did dispose of the body in his typical manner, and he painted and kept Ernst's skull. Later that month, Jeffrey would strike again when he lured 22-year-old and father of two, David Thomas, with the promise of alcohol and money for photos. Jeffrey described that after he drugged David, that he was no longer attracted to him, but out of fear of retaliation, he strangled the man to death and disposed of the body without retaining any of his body parts. Following David's murder, Jeffrey took a five-month hiatus and would discuss with his parole officer his loneliness, his depression, and even his thoughts of suicide. In February 1991, Jeffrey would strike again after he lured 17-year-old Curtis Strader back to his apartment with yet again the promise of money for photos. Jeffrey drugged and strangled him with a leather strap. Jeffrey kept Curtis's skull, hands, and genitalia. In April 1991, Jeffrey brought 19-year-old Errol Lindsay to his apartment and drugged him but Jeffrey changed up a little when he proceeded to drill into Errol's head and insert hydrochloric acid into his brain with a turkey baster. Oh, good God. Yeah, you thought we were, uh, we were already pretty grotesque. No. But wait, we... there's more. But, but wait, <laughs> there's more. Yeah, he's, he's really gone off the deep end. And to make... Errol's story worse. Allegedly, Errol woke up during this operation and said, quote, I have a headache. What time is it? End oh, quote. Oh so my what a, God. Yeah. So what does Jeffrey do? He drugs him back unconscious before strangling him to death. So it is believed that the reason Jeffrey did this is because he was experimenting to see if he could cause a person to be completely submissive to him. Again. So he was trying to rewire somebody. He was trying to, like you said, rewire, essentially make a person brain dead. And that way he has his own personal living being as a sex toy. Mm. Again, I think Jeffrey should have been paying a little bit more attention in chemistry and anatomy class because, yeah, yeah, uh, drill a hole into the brain and then add hydrochloric acid and let's see what happens. Well, it's kind of hard to pay attention when you're drunk off your ass every class. Oh, you bring up an excellent point. I didn't even think of that, that he's just too intoxicated to pay attention. (laughs) Forgot about that. And getting 0.4s in university. Yeah, flunking out. Mm -hmm. Did not even think of that. So it is around this time that his neighbors started complaining about the foul smells coming from the apartment and that they would hear loud bangs and even believed to hear a chainsaw on occasion. Hmm. Jeffrey's landlord confronted him, but ultimately did nothing. Go figure. Go figure. Jeffrey stated that he 
was able to get his land uh, landlord off his case by saying that it was his uh, exotic fish that he needed to get rid of, that they had died and gone bad and that he just needed to get rid of them to get the smell down. And nothing much was said about the loud bangs nor the belief of hearing a chainsaw. Yeah, I'm sure if I you know, heard a steel chainsaw revving up in the inner city apartment, uh, I'd, I'd raise a few questions. <laughs> You would really hope so. You <laughs> would really, really hope so. Even even here in my apartment, I think if if I heard chainsaws revving up, I'm gonna be highly concerned, and I'm probably calling the cops. But yeah, like again, high crime area. Mm-hmm. He's able to get away with a little bit more. So in May 1991, Jeffrey invited 31-year-old Tony Hughes to his apartment with uh, the promise of money for photos, to which Jeffrey drugged him and began experimenting again by drilling a hole into his head and adding hydrochloric acid. Much to Jeffrey's surprise, the brain damage or the damage to his brain resulted in Tony's death. Might have been surprising to Jeffrey, not surprising to me. Yeah, yeah, there's there's no surprises here. Uh, we, we, we knew what um, ultimate fate was on its way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knew, knew the conclusion, sad to say. So two days later, Jeffrey came across 14-year-old boy, Conorak Synthasophone, which turned out to be the younger brother of the boy he molested back in 1988. Oh, wow. What horrendous luck this family has Mm. and before i get into this i'm going to have to imagine that maybe conorak and his older brother are maybe estranged or you know don't talk or whatever because conorak was hesitant but ultimately went with jeffrey back to his apartment after the promise of money for photos which is the exact same thing that his older brother did and resulted in his molestation. Mm. So Jeffrey drugged the boy, but before he fell unconscious, he took the boy to his bedroom, where in a drugged-up state, the boy witnessed the dead body of Tony Hughes laying on the ground. The boy, according to Jeffrey, noticed the body, but due to his drugged state did not have any surprise, any shock in seeing a dead body. Yeah, I mean, in that state of mind, you know, nothing is a surprise, nothing is anything. Right, yeah, you're on the the brink of blacking out, nothing makes sense anymore, so. Jeffrey drilled a small hole into the boy's frontal lobe and added hydrochloric acid. He later slept next to the boy before waking up, drinking a few beers, and leaving to go to the bar. And this is where the story gets really twisted. When Jeffrey was returning home in the early morning of the following day, he found the 14-year-old boy on the sidewalk talking with three African-American women in Lao. Jeffrey approached and tried to convince the women that he was friends with the boy, but the women were not convinced and had already called 911. The boy, even as Jeffrey approached him, attempted to get away but was still too lucid to be able to stand up correctly and get away from him. When two officers showed up to the scene, Jeffrey convinced them that the boy was his 19-year-old boyfriend. Somehow, his lie worked. Good God, once again. Once again. And the police were getting ready to let him go when one of the three women were attempting to convince him that Jeffrey was not the man he appeared 
but it is accounted that the woman was told to shut the hell up by one of the officers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not a not a proud moment for mm-hmm. for law enforcement as as we've gone through in its entirety thus far. So a little while later, three firefighters also arrive on the scene and believe that the boy needed medical attention. But apparently the police officers shooed the firefighters away. Mm. Yeah, these guys, you know, are trained in in, in medical uh, emergencies. And nope, they were told, he's fine, you're good, walk yeah, away. Co- yeah, the cops are taking some L's on this one. Mm-hmm. And to make things worse, a third officer approached the scene. And what do these three officers do but escort Jeffrey and the boy back to his apartment? Mm. When back at the apartment, Jeffrey showed the police officers some of the erotic photos that he had taken of the boy to prove that they were lovers. And wouldn't you know it, they believed him. I mean, how how, how as a law enforcement, you got somebody claiming to be 14 years old and you're just going to believe the person, you know, they're, they're blaming saying he's done these acts and, you know, he's saying he's 14. You don't, you don't bring him in and, and question and double check the age of this victim. Yeah. Just for clarity, claiming he's 19, even though he's 14. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, there's this big, essentially at this point there, there had been a crowd that had gathered around and you're just saying, Nope, everything's fine, folks. We'll, we'll take care of this. And almost to the conclusion of this story, but you're not putting this guy in cuffs. You know, you're not questioning enough. How can you in good faith allow this? Hmm. So while back at the apartment, one of the officers believed to smell what seemed to be that of a decomposing body and even peeked his head into Jeffrey's room. But the officer did not turn on the light. And as a result did not see the body of Tony Hughes laying dead and decomposing on the floor. It's like, you're so close. You're yeah. so close. If you just do the right things, you end the story. Yeah. But you don't. Nope. You, you walk away. So once the police had left, Jeffrey attempted again to put acid in the boy's brain, and this resulted in his death. So Jeffrey spent the remainder of the day doing what he's known for, dismembering and keeping the skull of both of his recent victims. In June 1991, Jeffrey brought home 20-year-old Matt Turner all the way from Chicago with the promise of a professional photo shoot where he yet again drugged and strangled the man. He kept Matt's head and internal organs in plastic bags in his freezer. A few weeks later, in July 1991, He brought home 23-year-old Jeremiah Weinberger, where he drugged Weinberger and drilled a hole into his head and injected boiling water into his head twice, Hmm. which resulted in a short coma before Jeremiah succumbed to his injuries. Oh, Lord, what an awful... I mean, obviously, any way to go is, is not a good way to go, but good God. Yep, yep. Died due to brain damage by in part of drilling and boiling hot water entering your brain. And also it just raises the question of how and why did Jeffrey think that this would work? Like what is, what is his source material or is it this all just 
random thought that oh, yeah, oh the, the hydrochloric acid didn't work, so let's try boiling water. Yeah, let's just try standard H2O. Yeah, and nope, still doesn't work that way. Hmm. Only a few days later, Jeffrey lured 24-year-old Oliver Lacey home with the promise of money for photos and, of course, drugged the man. Jeffrey intended to keep Oliver alive, at least for a little while. But when he was unsuccessful with chloroforming, he strangled the man to death and dismembered him. Oliver's head and heart were put in the fridge and the bones were put in the freezer. A few days later, still in July, he lured 25-year-old Joseph Bradahoff, drugged and strangled him to death. Jeffrey left Joseph's body on the bed for a couple of days. And when he removed the sheet from the body, he saw maggots eating away at the corpse. Mm. He put Joseph's head in the fridge as well. Still in July, Jeffrey approached three men and offered them money for nude photos. And surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, one of these men accepted. And he was 32-year-old Tracy Edwards. Unbeknownst to Jeffrey, this is where he made a fatal mistake. When Tracy arrived at Jeffrey's apartment, he could smell the awful smell of death and noted the boxes and bottles of acid that Jeffrey had strewn around the apartment. Jeffrey tricked Tracy into turning his head to look at his tropical fish, and when he did, Jeffrey placed handcuffs onto one of his wrists. Tracy was obviously panicked, but went along with Jeffrey as he dragged him into the bedroom. Inside the bedroom, Tracy saw several nude photos around the room and a 55-gallon drum in the corner where the foul stench seemed to come from. And I want to take a pause here real quick mm -hmm. because in my apartment complex when I first moved in, one of my neighbors on the first floor, they had two blue 55-gallon drums on their patio. And oh, I'm like, no. I saw that and I was like, Either these dudes are cooking or there's bodies in these. Like, <laughs> no, no doubt. You don't keep, and I'm sorry if you do, but if you do just keep these laying around, like not in a barn or a storage room or something, you have a problem. Like, yeah. please move those. But luckily for me, whenever I came back from Germany, they had already sawn these barrels in half and they're using them as, uh, as pot potters for for their tomato plants and i'm like okay that's fine but walking in just seeing two 55 gallon drums i'm like that's not okay. oh yeah that, that that's uh that's raising red flags for sure big red flags and i'm just having to think too inner city mm -hmm. apartment that more than likely does not have a patio I'm, I'm almost positive it doesn't and someone had to see him drag this 55 gallon drum up the staircase to his apartment somebody had to see that yeah he's just rolling it up the stairs just, just rolling it on up i think i'm gonna ask questions yeah i'm gonna go talk to my landlord I, yeah i'm gonna say hey you already you didn't do anything about the smells and the bangs and the chainsaw can you at least address the 55 gallon drum because that's not okay yeah something's going on here so going back to this, Jeffrey held a knife to Tracy and told him that he wanted to take a few pictures. As a, a lot of people know, and, and whenever I wrote this part out, it definitely reminded me of the scene from Netflix that was the constant advertisement with the 
actor, I forget his name, where he's like, it's okay, I, I just want to take a few pictures. You know, just mm-hmm. real creepy, like. But Tracy, in fear for his life, agreed if he would put the knife away. And so he removed his shirt in hopes of appeasing Jeffrey. While he was doing this, Jeffrey turned to his TV and creepily rocked back and forth before turning back to Tracy and placing his head on his chest to listen to the man's heartbeat. With the knife still in his hand, Jeffrey told Tracy that he intended to eat his heart. Tracy made attempts to appease Jeffrey by saying that they were friends, that he wouldn't do anything to hurt him. And it appeared that as a result, Jeffrey was having a lapse in his psychotic judgment. Tracy convinced Jeffrey to let him use the restroom and to sit in the living room where the AC was. While sitting on the couch, Tracy noticed that Jeffrey seemed out of it again and was no longer holding on to his handcuffs. Tracy rose from the couch in the living room and punched Jeffrey in the face and made his escape. And honestly, when I read that, I was like, hell yes. Yeah, absolutely. You go, Tracy. It's interesting, you know, you talk about the lives of judgment. It's like, uh, you know, was someone actually, even though it wasn't genuine, but the thought of genuine affection and care and concern is what is what what flipped a trigger in him to let his guard down. Exactly. And it, it makes me raise the question because... We've already had several victims, Mm -hmm. but I have to imagine that Jeffrey never gave them an opportunity to Mm -hmm. be lucid enough to be able to to murder, mutter these words. Or if they were lucid enough, I have to imagine at this point in time, they're already so afraid for their life that they can't speak. Yeah, they can't speak. They're just freaking out where... Tracy appears to be able to maintain some level of, of clear head and calm mind to, to be able to de-escalate the situation. Tracy was successful in flagging down two police officers who attempted to remove the handcuffs as Tracy explained what had happened to him. The key the police had would not work on these handcuffs. So they brought Tracy back to Jeffrey's apartment. It's like, oh crap, you know? Mm-hmm. By bringing him back, the hope was to retrieve the key and to also investigate what was going on. When they arrived at the apartment, they were invited in by Jeffrey. As Tracy explained to the officers about the knife, Jeffrey seemed to remain quiet, but eventually told the officers that the key to the handcuffs were on his bedroom dresser. As one of the officers entered his bedroom, Jeffrey seemed to try and rush past him after what appeared to be a realization of what he had just told the officers to do, but was pushed back by the officer. When retrieving the key, the officer returned to his partner in the room and recounted, stating, These are real. He was holding none other than the Polaroid pictures Jeffrey had taken of his slain victims. I have to imagine just due to the happenstance of everything that if Jeffrey didn't have these photos, he might have been able to get away. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I truly think so. I truly think so. Right. That it might've been another slap on the wrist to him. And then he just can keep going. But luckily it didn't turn out this way that his own actions, his own trophies finally catch up to him. So in this turn of events, Jeffrey attempted to resist arrest and flee, but he was 
luckily taken down by the officers. After the officers had put him in handcuffs, one of the officers opened the fridge, revealing the head of a man inside, to which Jeffrey stated, quote, For what I did, I should be dead. Upon investigation by Milwaukee's Criminal Investigation Bureau, they uncovered several severed heads, several skulls, two human hearts, along with various other body parts inside the apartment. Law enforcement was even quoted that it felt more like an anatomy museum than that of an apartment. So on July 23rd, 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer's interrogation finally begins into the murders that he had committed. These invest these interrogations would take approximately 60 hours combined. Dahmer even waived his right to have an attorney present through his interrogations and stated that he wished to confess about how he had created this horror and it only makes sense I do everything to put an end to it. Feels strange, right? Mm. Oh, no doubt. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there are several serial killers who want to be caught, but never once did it feel like Dahmer was or was really crying out for attention to the police saying, you know, you guys can't catch me. You know, I'm, I'm making a mockery of you. It just kind of seemed like he was oh, he getting was away doing, with it. Yeah, he was just, it was, it had become his day-to-day -day routine. Yeah, exactly. It had, it had literally been part of, it had become his daily living. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it was just, I don't know, it, it doesn't feel like a, a cry for attention as much as a, this is what I want to do. This is how I find gratification. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Through his interrogations, Dahmer had admitted to having murdered 16 young men in Wisconsin and one former man, Stephen Hicks, in Ohio, bringing his total kill count to 17 individuals. And so let me ask you this, Connor, because, you know, kind of going off that, that it wasn't really a, a cry for attention to police or anything like that. It wasn't seemed to be mocking them. Why do you believe that up until this point, I've not really made mention of the law enforcement believing that they've had a serial killer on their hand? Well, I'm going to go... I'm going to go with a couple things, I think, due to the uh, location. The city mm -hmm. was in a, in a high crime rate. Uh, I'm sure a high crime rate, big city, low income area where people go missing all the time. They just probably assumed that most of these people were, you know, you said under, you know, underage, uh, running away, getting away from an environment. I'm going to go with, you know, just the, the low income areas, high crime rate, uh, you know, people, people maybe trying to get out, just leave, or they just know that things happen. And honestly, it's, it's not a high priority list to go into those areas at times. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. But to extrapolate a little further, only two of his 17 victims were white. Mm. The remaining 15 were people of color due to high racism within mm -hmm. local law enforcement and the judicial system within Milwaukee at this time. It was gone under the radar, again, being high crime areas. As we've touched on in this podcast in the past, that typically law enforcement is not very high in these areas and typically allow these activities to continue on, focusing their attention more 
on low crime areas with, you know, uh, to put it lightly, higher income families uh, mm. that is the wrong mentality to have, right? That Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible tragedy. And so Dahmer, through his interrogations, uh, even had an illustration of what he was depicting as his private altar. And when asked, you know, who this altar was dedicated for, Dahmer simply replied, myself. It was a place where I could feel at home. And this, you know, altar had, was going to have several of the severed heads and body parts and flesh, you know, making up the altar. Goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sick and twisted. It goes back to the, uh, you know, speaking of altar, you know, altars in church, going back to the uh, to the dog at the very beginning with the uh, the, the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And so, surprisingly enough, in this case, two days after his interrogations began, Dahmer was charged with four counts of first-degree murder. By August 22nd, he had been charged with, furthermore, 11 murders that he had committed in Wisconsin. September 14th, investigators in Ohio had uncovered the body, or I'm sorry, uncovered the bone fragments strewn out in the woodlands at his former address that was of his first victim. And three days later after that, he was charged by authorities in Ohio with Stephen Hicks's murder. The crimes he was not committed for was the attempted murder of Edwards, nor was he charged with the murder of Stephen Tiumi. The reason for him not being charged with Stephen Tiumi's murder was that they did not have enough evidence to provide a, you know, without a shadow of a doubt that he had committed the murder. And they believe that without this evidence that it might lead to speculation on the other murders. It's like, mm-hmm. let's take what's concrete and mm-hmm. put that forward And we know at the end of the day, we've still brought justice to this individual we have not. Mm -hmm. And so in January 13th, 1992, Dahmer pleaded guilty, but insane to 15 counts of murder. So still missing two, but if we can lock him up for 15 counts, you know, we've, we've still done our job. We've still put this monster behind bars. Yeah. You've done your job, uh, I would put that lightly, but but yes, did your job. There was some preventative action that could have took place many, many moons ago. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, there was a lot of opportunities for preventative action, and now we're doing reactive action. Mm-hmm. So Dahmer's trial finally began on January 30th, 1992. He was tried in Milwaukee for these 15 counts of murder. Dahmer's attorney had tried to debate on the fact that he was suffering from mental and personality disorders and that the prosecution did not, you know, differentiate the the depravity of Dahmer and his ability to understand what he was doing versus the impulses he had that yes he has mental disorders personality disorders but is still as a human should be able to understand what he is doing is wrong you said he pleaded insanity he played pleaded guilty but insane i've always found that uh i know that there are people that are you know uh, mentally unwell, but I've always found it interesting how, in some instances, how that 
lessens these sentence. I know that, you know, their their mental capacity and mental capability are hindered by what they have going on, you know, in their in their minds, but I still think actions are actions. You know what I mean? I've always found that interesting when people play the insanity card. No, I a hundred percent agree and and don't get me wrong, you know, I I feel for the people that are deeply, you know, their their lives are deeply affected by by mental disorders and personality disorders. But at the same time, when having committed such heinous acts that I feel like claiming insanity is such a cop out. Oh, it absolutely is. That why, if I'm going on trial for these terrible things, why would I not claim insanity? Oh, yeah. I mean, how many times have you seen it, you know, in instances someone does that and the sentence is just, is ridiculously lessened because it's oh yes this person is you know quote unquote insane so this sentence that should be life turns into you know just a, a slap on the wrist is what it seems mm-hmm. absolutely and it it's it's horrifying to think that our judicial system allows that to happen that we send these people back out in society after say some odd years that and and have done nothing to actually dive into the psych the psychiatry of the matter mm-hmm. to understand and the psychology of the matter to understand how do we fix this mm-hmm. so a psychiatrist during the trial diagnosed Dahmer with necrophilia borderline personality disorder schizoid personality disorder alcoholic dependency and psychotic disorder so quite a few Mm-hmm. But still, to the prosecution's aspect, yes, he has these uh, mental and personality disorders, but does not justify his actions. Through some of his psychological evaluations, it was determined that Dahmer was not a sadistic individual. Mm-hmm. I have to highly disagree with that assessment. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with that as well. I'm a, I'm a highly disagree that I seeing people as objects and doing the actions you do you know you're taking pleasure in it and that is quite literally you know part of the definition of a sadist mm-hmm. is taking enjoyment in other people's misery and their pain and it's just some interesting notes here too through his evaluations and his interviews that Dahmer had stated that he identified and you know I guess agreed with the villains in the Exorcist 3 and Star Wars the Return of the Jedi kind of Kind of interesting and kind of, which, which don't get me wrong, you know, standing before these people, yeah, uh, to put it lightly but, or not so lightly, these aren't normal people. Mm-hmm. But to to stand there across the table from this man and, and this person tell you that, I, I don't know what I'd be thinking in that moment. Oh, if I'm listening to a man, you know, somebody uh, claiming these, you know, sitting there being tried for these acts and they start bringing up the exorcist and uh, return of the Jedi. I mean, I just don't know where that would even come from. Exactly. Like what is is going on in this person's head? And it's like, I, I know everything's been out of left field up to this point, but we've gone past left field. Oh yeah. We're in another ballpark. Yeah. We we were in San Diego and somehow we're in Boston now. I I don't understand across the country. (laughs) And so in conclusion to the trial, the trial had uh, lasted two weeks. And on February 14th, both attorneys had delivered their their arguments. 
to the jury. Of course, the, the defense is, is leaning on the testimonies of mental health professionals uh, to while the prosecution is, is using the information at hand as well as the confessions from Dahmer himself. And it, even to kind of speak further on that, the defense counsel used 75 minutes of closing argument. These guys are, are really doing their job, but at the same time, I, I my heart goes out to these attorneys that have to do this because you know you are allotted an attorney Mm -hmm. but jesus at some point like what what how do you look at this and and try and stay you know bipartisan that you know you're sitting right beside a monster oh it's always it's always fascinated me seeing these people that uh defend and just kind of you know you know that you know the ultimate in end game of Mm -hmm of this trial. It just, I, I couldn't, I don't know how they do it. You know, I'd understand that, that lawyers and, and all that kind of play on a different scale of the, uh, of the moral plane that I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't see how, you know, morally people can get up there and, and try to defend this person and get them off of, you know, the, these crimes that they have committed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's baffling. I, I'm, I cannot be an attorney for various reasons, but that, that's one of them. So Dahmer was eventually sentenced to life imprisonment plus 10 years for the first two counts. And he also had a, following that, he had a remaining 13 counts of mandatory mandatory sentencing of life imprisonment plus 70 years. And so the reason Dahmer did not get the death penalty was due to the fact that Wisconsin had abolished capital punishment back in 1853. Oh, wow. They had been got rid of it. Holy cow. Hmm. Yeah, for real. Yeah, it's wild to think about. Following his sentencing, his father, Leonel, and stepmother requested to have a private meeting with their son, uh, which this was granted to them. And it was accounted that at the end, the three of them had exchanged hugs and, you know, they they essentially wished their son slash stepson best of luck. I, as a parent, you know, to to an extent, you know, the belief is you got to love your kid no matter what. I think at this point, that's the... That's the no matter what. That's the no. Yeah. The, the the line has been snapped. So three months after his conviction in Milwaukee, uh, Dahmer was extradited uh, to the state of Ohio and was uh, uh, there to stand trial for the murder of Stephen Hicks. And the court hearing only lasted forty five minutes. And oh. Dahmer had once again pleaded guilty and was sentenced to a sixteenth term of life imprisonment. So. Great stuff. He's got 16 whole terms of life imprisonment. Finally, justice is going in the right direction. About time. It's about time. So uh, after his sentencing in Ohio, Jeffrey was sent back to uh, Columbia Correctional Facility. During his incarceration, he spent a year in solitary confinement. And this is something that's it's horrifying to me. And, and they really touch on it in uh, Criminal Minds that some of these serial killers get fans mm-hmm. and and Dahmer was one of them. He got several correspondences, not only from within the United States, from around the world. And some of these things were, were money for whatever reason. Uh, but he was able to, to use this money on, on cassettes, on, on paper, on cigarettes, on papers, magazines, books. It's, 
it's horrifying, is it not? And th- these monsters, I feel like you're you're locked up in prison. You've you've done the right thing, you, or you, you the, the right thing has been done of of putting you behind bars. You don't get the joys of life anymore. Yeah, it's and always. That, oh, go ahead. It, uh, I, I was going to say was you know that might sound inhumane of me, but these people have not shown an ounce of humanity. No, there's no reason. There's there's no reason for uh, for people. And it just shows you how uh, twisted individuals are. Um, you know, you are basically praising this person for their actions that uh, mm-hmm. most definitely no praise is needed. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's so twisted. And in my mind, can enable other individuals who you know, are, are suffering from the same ailments, from the same, you know, upbringings that, oh, look at this guy, you know, how he's being worshipped. Mm-hmm. I, well, let me go do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I want to be, I want to be seen in this light as well. Yeah. I want to be on the news. I want to be on TV. I want to be on the papers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's so twisted. During his incarceration, Dahmer uh, started to become a devout Christian. And in May 1994, was baptized by a minister of the Church of Christ. Hmm. It's it's also interesting that these some of these individuals, you know, get right with God, which is always a good thing. But at the same time, it also raises questions: Is it is it genuine? Is it genuine? In July of the same year, that year being 1994, a fellow inmate had attempted to murder Dahmer with a, a shiv during a church service or I'm sorry, following a church service, but much to to this individual's chagrin, did not succeed in murdering Dahmer. However, this would not be the only attack against his life. In November 28th, 1994, Dahmer would leave his cell to go to his uh, work detail and was accompanied by two of his fellow inmates, Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver. These three individuals were working in the showers of the prison gym during this in, in the early morning hours. And at approximately 8, 10 a.m., Dahmer was discovered in the floor of the bathrooms suffering from extreme head injuries. Dahmer had been bludgeoned in the head and face with a 20-inch metal bar. He was taken to the hospital as a result Uh, of his injuries, but was pronounced dead an hour later. The other individual, Jesse Anderson, had also been beaten with the same instrument, with the same weapon, and had died two days later. So Scarver was the attacker, and this individual was already serving a life sentence for murder that he had committed back in 1990. He uh, told law enforcement that he, you know, had attacked Dahmer with the metal bar, but uh, and then went on to attack Anderson with the same weapon, and that this was not a premeditated incident, even though he had the metal bar in his prison cell and took the metal bar with him as the, these three individuals were going on their work detail. Just to kind of touch a little bit on Scarver. Scarver was also uh, suffering from mental illness and was uh, believed to be schizophrenic. Following Dahmer's death his mother joyce responded to the media stating quote now is everybody happy now that he is bludgeoned to death is that good enough for everyone end quote kind of kind of mixed feelings for sure um, yeah it, it's it's terrible for a mother to to lose her child and all the 
I'm sure the hate mail that she gets as well, but yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to uncover. Local law enforcement and the, the district attorney uh, tried to really outline that Scarver Dahmer's murderer was, was not a hero, that, that Scarver was, you know, at this point now serving, you know, life sentences, not only for the, the first murder he did, but the two additional murders he did while in prison. And that even some of the, the vic- victims' families were conflicted in, in how to feel about the, uh, the, the death of Dahmer mm-hmm. and the, the, the mother of Oliver Lacey stated, quote, the hurt is worse now because he's not suffering like we are. Mm-hmm. So I, I can feel that. I can, I can get behind that. Again, difficult to get behind. Uh, Dahmer, to, to kind of close it out, Dahmer had stated in his will that he did not want a, a service to be conducted and that he wanted to be cremated. As a result, uh, in, in September, Dahmer's body was, in fact, cremated and ashes were separated and given to both of his parents. The, uh, his, his parents had disagreements on what they wanted to do uh, with the body. Of course, the opportunity to dissect Dahmer's brain was an option, you know, to do it for psychiatric, psychological and, and medical research on the individual. But later that year, the brain was also cremated. Hmm. So weren't able to gain too much insight into the mind, the brain of Dahmer following his death. So that was the life and murders and the death of Jeffrey Dahmer. Connor, you have any closing remarks, questions, concerns? I would say that listening to this and going through this, there were um, obviously, you know, I don't want to say things that could have been done. I feel like there were there were actions that, you know, could have uh, aided in possible prevention. A lot of neglectance, a lot of a lot of being ignored, no genuine help, no genuine care or concern for somebody. And it just kind of shows when you are from birth through your whole entire, you know, early development stages into a young adult, the isolation and uh, what isolation and, you know, being consumed in your own thoughts, your sick and twisted thoughts, what it boils out to on the outside and what it, what it become, you know, what it, what it became. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, it's, it's, it, it, it's so hard to, to look back, think that there's more than if the number is more than one, that's too many. Right. And we know mm. that number is a lot greater than one. Just can't get over the, uh, the just, let's just keep passing them along like a baton. You know, they're, 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 they're just t- tossing them around like a baton until it becomes intolerable enough for, for whoever is in charge of them at the time. And they just pass them on to the next person and the next person. And well, you know, you look up X amount of years later and there's your son, there's your grandson. That is a, uh, world-renowned serial killer because mm-hmm. yep. no one would take the time to to uh, dig into what was truly wrong with with him yeah exactly it's it, it's horrifying to think about and you know really hopefully makes people through stories like this reflect on on the people around them in their own lives you know mm-hmm. are, are, are they asking the right questions are they doing all that they can for the people that surround them you know because at the end of the day, Jeffrey Dahmer was a person and mm-hmm. he could be anybody. Absolutely. You never know with, with what true true care and concern what someone can be. 
Exactly. Exactly. How could he have turned out? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to touch on kind of just the final point of like a synopsis from, from me and, and want to see what your thoughts are on this as well. So in my mind, from the, the top two categories for serial killers, in my mind, Dahmer was an organized serial killer. He was methodical with his, his victims, uh, his, his location, how he committed majority of his murders due to strangulation, creating an, an MO, yet uh, he, he stayed within one gender. He might have jumped races, but I mean, I think that might have placated to the, the victim pool that he had and, and potentially to what he thought he could get away with, mainly targeting people of color. But to kind of take a step further into the four subcategories of serial killers, I see Dahmer being a hedonistic killer because he is he's killing for his own sexual desire for his own pleasure any any disagreements or or, or any uh anything else for for my assessment so I don't know all the categories I'll be honest with you <laughs> um, I'll just go ahead and, and be honest I, I, mm-hmm. I do not but no what you've said is uh just going off that just hit the nail on the head I don't disagree with with anything very very much so an organized person and what he did. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and, and don't feel bad because of course I knew the, the organized disorganized being the primary categories, but in, in our previous episode that we did that I did with, with Bobby, I, I came across four subcategories, the four being the visionary, the mission oriented, the hedonistic and the power and control. Dahmer might've been, uh, had some of the aspects of power and control because these individuals seek to dominate and control uh, their victims and their actions. Uh, A little bit of that, but I believe hedonistic is the primary just due to the sexual desire. Correct. All right. Any, any final remarks, Connor, before I close this out? Don't have much. Just know that uh, Jeffrey was a, was a definitely a sick and twisted individual, but it always, you know, I'll go back to my point of what would happen if, if someone would have took the time just to, to check in on him, you know, that's, that is, that will be the age old question. Uh, just ask him how he's doing, how, how, how different could things have been? Right. Absolutely. Alrighty. With that being said, I want to take a real quick second before we close out uh, this episode and do something we've never done before in Doolahan Productions history. I would like to, to provide a, a special shout out to one of our, our fans and followers, Pidgey. I, I, we read your comment on Apple Podcast, and, and we're, we're not ghosting you. We promise we're here. We're back. Season two is greenlit and will be coming out sometime this year. So thank you for listening to the Jeffrey Dahmer episode of Serial Time, a serial killer podcast. If you like this episode, feel free to give us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Dulahan underscore productions. We have touched on some tough subjects this episode, including suicide. If you or a loved one are suffering from suicidal thoughts, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. As a disclaimer, no serial was harmed in the making of this episode. And we hope to see you next time.